Tonight we're going to talk about the truth about marriage and celibacy, but first of all we're going to talk about the cross, and I have a little introduction here that a man named Howard Vanderwell wrote entitled Christian Singles. He wrote it for preaching today. He said, I believe most Christians in America don't subscribe to the legitimacy of singleness. I'm convinced that is a reason for so much pain and hurt in the church about that issue. Directly or indirectly, subtly or not so subtly, we have ascribed to the conviction that singles are unfinished business. We say in groups and private discussions, aren't you married yet? What's a nice girl like you doing unmarried? What you need is a good wife, dude. Found anybody to date yet? I'm praying the Lord will lead you to a good person. It's too bad you're not married. Parents say that. Relatives say that. Family reunions say that. And churches, unfortunately, are notorious for saying such things. Books and articles written from a Christian viewpoint that say, if you'll only commit your life to Christ, God will make you happily married. Christ never said that. He said he will lead you to a life of meaning and purpose and fulfillment, but he never said he would give you a happy marriage. He's more concerned about other things. We need to accept the legitimacy of singleness, the biblical legitimacy of singleness. Simple mathematics tell us there are more women in the world than men, so there will always be single people. We need to accept it because there are some people who are called to be single, and there are others who don't want to be married, and we need to accept the Bible does not teach everybody has to be married. Anybody say amen? A few years ago, I wanted to do something unique on a Sunday morning for preaching on marriage, and I'd noticed over the years, every time I preached on marriage, when I would say those verses or teach from those verses that would address to men, you could almost feel the women's elbows going, yeah, listen, listen, listen. And those verses that address the women, you could almost see the men's elbows going, listen, listen, listen. And this particular time in preparing, I thought, you know what? Christ didn't give us the Bible so verses would cancel each other out. The verses written to husbands are for husbands to apply to their own life. And the verses written to wives are verses for the wife to apply to their own lives and not for the husband to apply to their own lives. And the submission word suddenly in some people's minds becomes the dominant word in that whole discussion. And men don't have to change because the wife's not submitting. Wives don't have to submit because the husband's not loving her like the church. It was like, Lord, what's going on here? And so he gave me a little plan, and I wrote a four-page bulletin that you have in your hand. The first two pages are the same as the ones I handed out that day. The last two pages were filled with verses unique to men, or the last two pages were filled with verses unique to women. So we passed out these little pamphlets that were four pages that said the happy Christian husband is one who's dead to self and alive to Christ. We passed that out to the men. And then the other one, the happy Christian wife, is one that is dead to self and alive to Christ. We passed those out to women. And keep in mind, the last two pages were unique for the women, and the last two pages were unique for the men. I did not preach the last two pages. I just preached the first two. So in light of what we've heard... Read the next two pages and apply them to yourself. God didn't design marriage to make us happy. He designed marriage to make us holy. So in doing this class, I thought, Lord, there's got to be a way to do this. And it applies to singles. And today it just laid out for me. It was really easy to do. And so you could kind of say I was half prepared before today came. Because page one and two are the same. So if you don't mind, I would like to 
almost preach page one and two. And for you not to feel picked on, but understand husbands got it like this and wives got it like this. And tonight singles are going to get it like this. Jesus said in Matthew 10, he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. I know it's contrary to a popular book right now, but Jesus didn't come to give you your best life now. He came to take your life (laughs) for you to lose your life and find it in him. And that, in the long run, is your best life now, okay? In Luke chapter 9, he was recorded by the physician as saying, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself or herself and take up his cross daily. Can we say daily? And follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What was the name of that guy that carried a wooden cross around the world? Arthur Blessed. Arthur Blessed. Okay. What I'm about to say isn't to shoot at him. Because I know his will got put on the cross every day when he was doing that. But to take up the cross daily isn't to carry something around that's wooden or to wear some nice jewelry, but to take up the cross daily is to lay your will down so that God's will reigns supreme. Romans 6, Paul is talking about grace and the glories of grace and sin and the horrors of sin. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So it's not just being dead and and sin conscious, but it's walking in newness of life, conscious of his life. That's to be lived, not our self-willed life anymore, but his new life. Verse 5, for if we have been united in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Somebody said sin is ruled by self, or self is ruled by sin. Verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. You know, dead people don't kill people. They don't rob banks. They don't cheat. They're dead. Verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once and for all. But the life that he lives... He lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Woo, there's a lot there. Anybody have any comments to say so far before we. When you were saying how uh, how it's our best life now, I couldn't help but think of the the passage where Jesus says that um, I did not come to bring peace into the world, but a conflict to turn mother against brother, family member against a family member. It's paraphrased, obviously. Right. But uh, right. It's it's uh it's not going to be the easy life, but it is going to be the peaceful life. Jesus says that uh, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But 
that doesn't mean that the worldly troubles are increased because of a true relationship with Christ. It says the 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 road is narrow, not broad. Broad is a way that leads to destruction, but narrow is a way, and difficult is a path that leads to salvation. So, right. I just wanted to emphasize that a little bit. <laughs> That's good. I do believe we live in light of the finished work of Christ. We've been made righteous because he said it is finished. But he's still working on us. And everything in our lives that is contrary to his will, he is dealing with. He's dealing with. If you're not very Christ-like and it really bothers you, you just cry out to the Lord. Lord, help me. I see the need. And he will. He'll see to it. Let's try to look at this in light of the struggles that you experience if God has called you at this point in your life to be a single person for him. It's not easy. It's not easy. And so the scriptures acknowledge that. They don't paint a bright picture that there's never any difficulties. What I'm hoping tonight is the scriptures come alongside you in your struggles and you feel identified with by the Master, the Lord and Savior, Jesus. And then he, in being beside you, will lift you up with fresh purpose and vision. Romans 8.28 We know that all things, can we say all things, work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So we're being conformed into the image of our older brother. You have an older brother you look up to? I mean, there's some older brothers that really are awesome. I believe Jesus was one, and he is one. All right, here's my little comment. As believers, we have been predestined. I mean, God has set this in, in motion in history past. We've been predestined by our God to be conformed to the image of his Son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, when faced with a choice between our comfort and our being conformed, we must yield to our God, willing to be humbled and die for his glory and to be resurrected as he wills and whenever he wills. So, sometimes your suffering may just be a small thing. Somebody at a family reunion saying something stupid. What would Jesus do? But a lot of times your suffering is difficult. You're single, but I do not believe you're alone. And it's my prayer that you guys come from this knowing you're not alone. All right, 2 Corinthians 4. Now, Paul was single and he was suffering, not just because he was single, but I'm sure in his suffering he was glad he wasn't married. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Cast down, but not destroyed. Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. Sometimes our dying is bringing life to someone else. As extreme as giving somebody a kidney, or as simple as forgiving someone that rammed your car on the parking lot that happened to one of our members and resulted in a time of ministry and prayer for the hurting person that made the boo-boo. 
Galatians 2, Paul wrote to this church, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It's as though we can't live the Christian life. Only Jesus can. And death to self creates a scenario in our hearts and our minds, our consciousness, where his will is allowed to reign supreme. And he's the one doing the living. I know it's a mystery and it sounds kind of mystical, but he inspires us to live a life that's pleasing to God. Philippians 3. Here's a guy that had done a lot of great things. And he had suffered a lot of hard things. And he said, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. The word he used there literally means dung. That I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, that is good behavior and obeying the Old Testament, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. To know someone is to come alongside them, to experience their presence, maybe even to go to school where they went. You may experience a betrayal, and at that point you actually taste of what he tasted. And it gives you a fresh appreciation and love for what the Lord went through. For us. 4, 15 and 16. We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us come boldly unto the throne of grace to find grace to help in the time of need. Yeah. When we're hurt and we can go to him and pour our hearts out, and he's able to identify with us. He's a faithful and merciful high priest, not just by intelligence, but by his own experience. Lord, I'm being slandered. He knows what that's like. Lord, all I can do is keep my mouth shut. I'll only make things worse if I speak. He knows what that's like. It's tough. <laughs> it's tough. Second Timothy 2 gives this promise. This is a faithful saying. If we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. So before victory comes the battle. Before a testimony comes the test. Before the message comes the mess. But if we just keep our faith in him, he'll bring you through. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. Verse 15 of that same chapter. Peter wrote, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. Now keep in mind, the first time we ran through this little list of scriptures, we were preaching to husbands and wives. And in marriage, there's three rings. Did you know that? Marriage is a three-ring circus. There's, sometimes there's the engagement ring. Then there's the wedding ring. And then there's the suffering. <laughs> Don't think it's strange that you didn't marry the perfect spouse. Something strange hadn't happened to you. 
but rejoice that you partake of Christ's suffering. Don't feel that it's strange that you're single? <laughs> That's what I'm saying, yeah. James 1, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. Maybe you didn't fall into being single, but you never imagined being single, so you're here being single, so it is kind of a shock. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The word doubt has a first four letters in it that the word double has. And the word doubt means two ways. You can't make up your mind which way to believe. So when you ask God for patience, for wisdom, don't stop asking. Don't give up. First John 3, he said, Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now, when he comes back and we go to heaven, we're all going to be single. Did you know that? The Mormons have it wrong. There's no weddings in heaven and no marriage is going to carry over. Well, there's the one wedding. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to be wedding. One wedding. One wedding. One wedding. <laughs> Weddings. Weddings, plural. <laughs> one wedding. Keep me on my toes. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So this is our hope. There is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And in the process, we're being made like Jesus. So before we dive into the unique material, these two pages is basic Christianity. <laughs> If you if this wasn't the sales pitch you heard that you brought you into following Jesus, well, welcome to the rest of the story. We are heaven bound. There's glorious things ahead, but sometimes there's things to walk through. You know, some guy may sign up for the military to be a captain, and maybe he wouldn't have signed up if he didn't realize the things he would have to walk through to prepare him for that. But it is worth it. So, we're going to talk about the truth about marriage and celibacy. And the way I'm going to speak is a way I probably wouldn't speak to married couples because it might discourage them when they need to be encouraged. But I think it's important that we not lie to single people about marriage. That we lie to That we not lie. (laughs) Not lie. Keep me on my toes. I've been known to skip... Well, there's I've been, no marriage in heaven, so God knows, hey, that stuff just doesn't work out. <laughs> well, if there was, for some people, marriage in heaven would be hell for them, because they'd still be in that difficult thing. So some people. An example, I don't remember, I'm involved in a lot of different things right now, but if the example is used, if everybody got to if everybody would go to heaven just because... It would be there would there's no it would be just be earth too. Yeah. So essentially, what you're saying, if there was marriage in heaven, it would be just hell on earth in heaven. For some people, it would be tough. All right, in Matthew 19, the verses preceding where those verses begin, the Pharisees come to him in verse three, testing him, saying to him, 
Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Keep in mind, they're not always going to him for answers. They're wanting to trip him up. They're wanting to cause his followers to fall away from him or inflame anger in people that aren't his followers to cause him troubles. And there was two schools of thought then in that marriage. Based on the law of Moses, Moses had said if a husband finds uncleanness in his wife, he can divorce her. One school of thought in Judaism was that means sexual impurity or sexual unfaithfulness, fornication, adultery. She's been proven to be unfaithful. He can get a divorce. All right. Christ agrees with that here. All right. But it's a permit. It's not a command. They believed if a man's wife was unfaithful, you must divorce her. It's bad religion not to. And vice versa. There was another school of thought that uncleanness could be anything that displeased the husband. If she burned breakfast, he could divorce her. So the plight of women in that day was very insecure. Marriage contract really in that kind of setting is kind of meaningless. A husband can just divorce you. Islam, a lot of people don't know this, but Islam is kind of like that. Husband can spit and say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, and you're divorced. Yeah, no recourse no for justice or protection or anything. And it, ha- it does happen. A lot of Muslim husbands are good husbands, but a lot are not. So they come to him. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? So they're trying to get him to take sides, and then they're going to bring up something that they think might trip him up. He answered and said to him, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Isn't that interesting in our day and time with same-sex marriage? Christ is asked about marriage, and he begins right there. He goes back to the beginning. He made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So he's basically speaking against the guys that just get mad at their wives and divorce them. What God has joined together, he makes two one. Let not man separate. It's wrong what you guys are doing. So then they come back with the law of Moses because they think he's going to speak against the law of Moses. So then why did Moses command them to give a certificate of divorce to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her, who is divorced, commits adultery. So he was basically telling those Pharisees that were divorcing their wives for petty reasons, he was calling them adulterers. He shook his own disciples up. They understood what he said. Verse 10, his disciples said to him, if this is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry if this is true, Lord, it's better not even to get married. If it's stuck, if I'm stuck with a woman, just because she's not going to commit adultery, I have to stay married to her, even though she may not cook good or she may not please me all the time, better not to get married. Jesus said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs 
who were born thus from their mother's womb. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. So notice in verse 11 again, all cannot accept this saying, but only to those it has been given. And then the end of the passage there, he who is able to accept it, let him accept it. Unfortunately, the Roman Catholic Church is trapped in its tradition of requiring its priests to be eunuchs. And many of those priests are not gifted that way. They don't have the gift of celibacy. And so we've got all kinds of men not entering the ministry. And the men that are entering the ministry are attracted to kids and not to women. And so we've got people in power that are corrupt. And it kind of goes back to this. So the f- disciples understood what Jesus was saying. Marriage is not easy. I don't understand that too because you, know, you would think the Catholic Church would have been very observant about the way Moses, it was all set up with the, the tribe of Levi and and Aaron had sons and well. obviously the tribe of Levi went from generation to generation. But it, it, it originated in the, Rome, the Holy Roman Empire because of the land squabbles. It just, uh, they couldn't afford, the church couldn't afford for priests to pass on their property from generation to generation. It was, it was a political thing that just stuck. Because the first Pope, Peter, was married. Right. And the other thing is, you know, the church came through an intense time of persecution. And we'll look at a few things Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7 that we looked at again two weeks earlier from today. It was tough to be a Christian leader and be married. So there was a time maybe when single guys were really running the show because their lives were in danger and they didn't want to endanger women. But when times of peace came, they got stuck with traditions. So 1 Corinthians 7, I say this as a concession, not as a commandment. Remember what Jesus has said, if you can accept this, accept it. This is for those that can accept it. I wish that all men were even as I myself. But each one has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that manner. But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. And italics, the, the translators added the words passion. So, If being single is hard for you because of passion, because of burning, don't just jump up and go get married. But start getting your life in order so you can get married with the least. Marriage is going to be tough, but you can get married with the least problems. So try to get your house in order. Let that passion drive you to do that. Get your house in order anyway. You need that. All right, verse 17. He goes on and says, but as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk. And so I ordain in all the churches. All right, verse 32. I want you to be without care. So Paul's saying something not just to be mean, but he's wanting to spare people's difficulties. He who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Verse 34, there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. 
The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I say for your own profit, not that I put a leash on you, but for what is proper, and that you may serve the Lord without distraction. So, marriage is going to distract you. But if you're married, God has called you to it, and he's going to bring you through it. And it is God's will that single people live celibate lives. Because if you don't, you're going to have a distracted life. Eugene Peterson shared the story of an unchurched young woman who began attending this church and became a believer. In the following months, she got baptized and started growing as a disciple, studying scripture and attending worship regularly and embracing everything readily and gladly. But one thing, she continued to live with her boyfriend as she had done for years, and she was not interested in marrying him. She said, without apology and not as a confession, but quite casually as we were getting acquainted with one another, she said, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. So on impulse, just as a pastor of this young believer, he says, would you try to live celibate for the next six months? She said, why would I do that? He just said these words. This blows my mind. Trust me, it's important. (laughs) So she said, okay. In a week, her boyfriend was gone. A month later, he wrote, she came to see me. She didn't mention it. The following month, she brought it up. She said, when you asked me to live celibate for six months, I had no idea what you were up to. But you asked me to trust you, and so I did. It's been two months now, and I understand, I think I understand what you were doing. I feel so free. I never felt so myself before, never felt so at home with myself. I thought everybody did what I was doing. All my friends did. I just thought it was an American way of living. Now I am noticing so many other things about my relations with others. They seem so much more clean and whole and uncluttered. And do you know what? I've been thinking that I might want to get married someday. Thank you. So the celibacy decision survived six months and continued for two more years. And then she got married to a different person. And Eugene Peterson was blessed to be a blessing at her wedding. Being single is being whole. It's being one. And when we are becoming one sexually with others, we're not really being single. And we're being distracted. And I believe if you're going to get married, you've got somebody in the way of the future. Page four. Like marriage, the call to singleness points beyond oneself. And then the second half, like singleness... The call to marriage points beyond oneself. The middle statement there by Peter Hubbard, who wrote this book called Love and Delight. He said, for the Christian, neither marriage nor celibacy is an end in itself. Instead, they are settings or callings in which each of us are being transformed into the image of God's Son, Jesus Christ. Suffering and sacrifice play central roles in all of our lives. Like marriage, a call to singleness points us beyond ourselves. Singleness points to our need for a genuine personal relationship with the Lord. Because you're single, you've got time for it, and you need it. Because you need His help and His strength. 
If loneliness hits you, that's a call to prayer. And really get to know the Lord personally. Number two, singleness points to our needs here in the family of God, now in real time. And this is twofold. You have needs that you don't have a spouse to help you with, and you're going to have to reach out to other people for help. So as a member of the body of Christ, your need is going to cause another member of the body of Christ to serve a need by helping you. This is God's will for his church. If the church was just married people, we would all live in our own little worlds and become a, a cloistered thing. Us four and no more, and it wouldn't be a blessing. Also, because of your freedom of time, you may be free not only to volunteer to help somebody, but you'll see things other people don't see. And you're able to alert church leadership, hey, we need to do something here, this thing. That makes sense? Number three, singleness points to the one who can enable his people to live celibate. It points to the one who can enable his people to live celibate. Living a celibate life is a testimony to the world. The world's problems, many times, is because of the lack of celibacy. One in four high school students here at Granbury High do not live with either one of their parents. And I guarantee you, the majority of the cases, which only has to be 51% to be the majority, the majority of the cases may be because of lack of celibacy. Kids got brought in the world, nobody's to take care of them. So the world needs a testimony, needs an example. The world may mock it, may persecute you for it, but forget what the popular culture says. What does that hurting person who lives across the street from you, what do they think? That's what matters. Number four, singleness points to the sufficiency of Christ and his enabling grace. Your life is a testimony that Jesus really is enough. He is. You're single, but you're not alone. Christ is sufficient. you got to believe it to be able to tap into it and draw near to him in prayer and his word and his people. Singleness, number five, points to heaven and our eternal union with Christ. In heaven, we're going to be single. We're going to have a one-on-one relationship with Christ. So singles actually have a jump on what married people are going to taste in the future. Our union with Christ is eternal, without any spouses in the way, any unsaved husbands or unsaved wives bothering us. And so being single, you've already started that journey, or at least you're tasting it. Number six, singleness points to our need to live an authentic community. Authentic community is a congregation that's alive and is meeting needs within itself and reaching out beyond itself. That's real community. Not just a form of something that looks like community, but it's real community. People caring for each other. Single people I've known that ministered to us, as I shared my heroes of often men singles three weeks ago, those singles were living in community with one another, and they were ministering life to one another. They had time. They stayed after church to pray with people in the parking lot. It was not a well-organized thing. It was a live, dynamic thing. It's a powerful, powerful thing. Singleness points to our opportunities to serve his kingdom. You hear of an opportunity to teach English to students in China? 
I heard that when I was at Shady Grove. I got so fired up and excited that I couldn't do it. I had a wife and two kids. But I remember there were two single gals. They went there and taught English as a second language to university students for a year. Wound up baptizing people in their bathtub. In China? In China. This was during the days. Well, they in their apartments they did. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it's just a hose. Yeah. They baptized them in their bathtubs in their apartments. As teachers. They Americanized the things for American teachers. They came back home, and Chinese people would come and visit them. They're converts. It was a real deal. Bon and Penny are both married now, and they have families. But during their single years, they were both single for a long time. When an opportunity came our way, I think it was a ministry based out of Oral Roberts University. Hey, we've got opportunity to send English teachers into Red China. We used to call it Red China back then. Who wants to go? People with families couldn't do it. It didn't pay enough. It was too much of a risk. It was hazardous. Two friends of ours went. That was awesome. Kingdom of God expanded. Number eight, singleness points to our need for more spiritual offspring. Isaiah 54 opens with the words, sing, barren woman. Sing. You're going to have more children than the woman who's married. Blah, blah, blah. And in the new covenant, we are able to bring people into the kingdom of God. We're able to lead people to Christ. And sometimes married people with kids have their hands full discipling their own children. They get a us for and no more mentality and don't care about the lost. Forget that evangelism is part of the Christian life. Singleness points to that opportunity and sets the example for married people to live beyond themselves and not just have that us for no more mentality. Singleness points to the beauty of living simply. A lot of married people, families are in debt up to their necks, barely surviving. Financial problems are the major cause of divorce. And our single brothers and sisters are such an example to us that, hey, you don't need all that stuff. You can be more mobile than you are. You can, you know, And singleness conforms us to Jesus Christ. He was single. He is single until that great wedding. For the Christian, neither marriage nor singleness is an end in itself. There are settings or callings in which each of us are being transformed into the image of God's Son. All right, next section. Like singleness, the call to marriage points beyond oneself. Number one, marriage points to our need for a corporate relationship with the Lord. If things are not right with your spouse, you can't pray. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding manner, lest your prayers be hindered. If mama's not happy, nobody's happy. If things aren't right at the house, things aren't right with God, because God's your father-in-law, too. I know there's a God... Not just intellectually or through some great guy who's skilled at apologetics. I know there's a God for the help he's given in working out the difficulties we've had in our marriage. We've called on him for help and he's given us grace to forgive and get up and start again. God is real. 
So we, we know him corporately, maybe more than we know him personally, because we're married. All right, number two, marriage points to our future relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We're just married temporarily. So I've got to take good care of you because in heaven you're going to be my sister. There's a marriage coming. The marriage supper of the Lamb when the church is joined to Jesus. Number three, marriage points to our desperate need for God's mercy and power. You think being single wishing you were married is tough? Try being married wishing you were single. Is that why you put in desperate need for desperate need? Mercy. Lord, change my heart. Oh God, change my heart. Marriage points to God's nature, both unity and diversity. We know God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They are one, and yet they are diverse, different. In marriage, there's a Trinity. There's the husband. There's a wife, and there's a God who helps keep them together. Diverse, we are not God. I am not the wife. She is not the husband. But God is able to make us one. So it can be a testimony. Picture of who God is. Number five, marriage points to our calling to fight against division. You cannot live with strife in the home. You've got to pursue peace. Pursue it, pursue it, pursue it. Get help. If you ever get married and things aren't right, don't give up. Get help. If you have to separate to get it right, do it. You know, if my bones get out of joint, the doctor's probably going to pull it further out of joint before it'll go back in the joint. And sometimes in a marriage, a relationship can get all jacked up. Separation happens, so there could be separation before there's relocation. And during that separation, not a license to be unfaithful. Marriage points to God as father and father-in-law. I'm accountable to him personally and corporately. And sometimes I have prayed, God, please deal with your daughter. I'm getting out of your way. I know that is prayed the same. Number seven, marriage points to God's life-giving love for us. Marriage often leads to bringing forth children. Okay? Life. Two become one in their child, basically. So becoming one often results in multiplication or addition. Marriage points to God's life-giving love because he gives us life. When he gives us life in the form of a children, we really understand how much he loves us because we, that kid comes with love. You have one kid, you don't think you can love any other kids. Get another one, you'll love that kid just as much. God loves us that much. Marriage points to God's heart for children. Marriage points to our need to die to self. A happy marriage is two funerals and one resurrection. We both die so that we both can live. Is that what the bachelor parties are? Bachelor parties are not a time to sow bad seeds that are going to cause you problems in your marriage. The two funerals? Yeah, yeah, that's what it should be. Yeah, these guys that have bachelor parties and hire strippers and all kinds of stuff, they are sowing a minefield that's going to destroy their marriage. It's like, it's crazy. And marriage conforms us to Christ. So it's been my effort here to convey the fact that we're all on a journey to be more like Jesus.
And he'll use singleness to do it, and he'll use marriage to do it. And if you bail out on your marriage, you're going to jump out of the frying pan into the fire. I've seen it. Guys divorce Jezebel and marry the devil's sister. So if you think you want to get married, I don't want this class to be used to encourage people to get married because that would make some people feel awkward. But if you want to get married, talk to me and I'll, I'll share a CD with you and some other things that will get you moving forward. So what do you guys think? Does this ring true, any of this? I appreciate your effort to make us single people feel like we're equals to the marriage. You are. <laughs> You're superior in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, uh, is it easier for a, or, um, a man to stay single, or is it easier for a woman to stay single? Anybody have thoughts? I'd probably say a man. Because for a woman, it's more society okay that a man constantly ask a girl out. So I, I, I would see it as it's hard for a woman to stay single because she's always having advances on her. Whereas men, not so much. It's very common for like two women to be roommates. In that context, I think it's harder for a man to be single because for a man to have a roommate, our culture, especially in our day, is hard on him. Yeah, I'm thinking when I shared on the heroes, I shared about Ina and Valda. They lived together. Well, it was kind of a duplex, but the the walls didn't go up all the way. And so, because the house needed to breathe. And so it was no big deal. There were women. But if it was two men living like that, you know. So maybe in that context, it's easier for women to live together. And also, there are going to be more single women than men because there's more women than men. Men don't live as long. War times kills more men than women. Uh, and I'm speaking in generalizations here, so I have to be careful. But in our day and time, there's more single women than there are married women. Single in quotation marks. Let me read this about cohabitation, because you said single in quotation marks. In 2007, Dr. A. Patrick Schneider II, who uh, holds boards in family and geriatric medicine and runs a private practice in Lexington, Kentucky, did a statistical analysis of cohabitation in America in the New Oxford Review based on the findings of a number of academic resources. And here's five conclusions that he drew from his studies. Number one, relationships are not stable in cohabitation. One-sixth of cohabiting couples stay together for only three years. One in ten survives five or more years. So only 10% of couples that are just shacking up or cohabiting, only 10% will live uh, last longer than five years. And um, a sixth of them don't even last three years. All right, number two, cohabiting women often end up with the responsibilities of marriage particularly when it comes to caring for children, without the legal protection. Research has also found that cohabiting women contribute more than 70% of the relationship's income. And what we're seeing in our day and time is young men are addicted to video games. We're telling girls to run from that. He's not growing. That's, that's, that's perpetual boyhood. And I mean, you know, a guy may be world champion at it, but it's going to work bad for you in your marriage.
because it's not creating income. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, and some guys may be really good, but, uh, you know, what are you doing whining? I just won the NBA title with my thumbs. Okay. All right, number three. <laughs> I probably have half the youth group walk out if I shared this. Uh, number three, cohabitation brings a greater risk of diseases because the cohabiting men are four times more likely to be unfaithful than men who are married. So it's not a real secure situation. Uh, poverty rates are higher among cohabitors. Those who share a home but never marry have 78% less wealth than those who are continuously married. Uh, number five, those who suffer most from cohabitation are the children. And we have one in four kids not living with either one of their parents. <laughs> in our high school. And so, it's just tough. It's tough being single, but I think it's tougher being single and not being married. So if you want to get married, man, let's talk and we'll brainstorm and start praying and seeking the Lord. But keep in mind, marriage is going to be tough. Oh, yeah. It'll be tough. Yeah, that'd be tough. I'd like to share something quick, Pastor, yeah. about married couples. My, uh, my daughter, who's 34, and her husband's 35. Three kids, seven, eight, nine year old. <laughs> absolutely, hands down, the happiest married couple I have ever known in my entire life. I mean, just sometimes it's just too blissfully happy. And they don't always get along. You know, they have their. He's a, he's a, he's a uh, commercial welder, and uh, <laughs> they had an agreement that says, look, I don't want you working because I don't want to come home on the weekend after you've been working all week and you're cleaning house, and I feel selfish because I might be laying on the sofa watching TV, and then I feel guilty because i got to get up and help you clean the house. I'd rather you take care of the house during the week. We don't have two incomes, and that way when the weekend gets here, I get to share you, and you're not busy with housework. And that's been great. It's been working fine. My daughter had a hysterectomy last week. So Keith's now having to do the housework, mop the floors, empty out the dishwasher, empty out the washing machine because she can't bend over and all this. They just took the staples out yesterday. And uh, so last night she called me. She calls me two or three times a week, and I talk with him also. And it, uh, she was saying, she says, you know, I got up last night right after we went to bed. And she says, you know, he said he was going to clean the kitchen. And it wasn't clean. The dirty dishes were all over the cabinets. The floor hadn't been mopped or swept. The trash hadn't been taken out. And she says, you know, I refuse to become one of those women who just nag, nag, nag their husband. She says, but, you know, I went in and told him, she says, I don't want to do this, but, you know, you didn't do what you said you would do. And so... She talked, they, he got it, took the trash out and all that, and it was fine. But she says, you know, I was so mad. And I was like, okay, so what are you going to do to get over the madness? Because, you know, your agreement with him that he probably hasn't thought about is that you keep the house, he makes the paycheck, he comes home and enjoys your company and the kids because mm-hmm. he loves being a married dad. And uh, she says, I don't know, I don't know this. And I said, well, here's a suggestion, give it some thought. I said, go get you a big, sticky pad 
about a little bit two inch by two inch deal. The big sticky pad. And I said, you got six weeks that you can't do this. Doctor has said, right down from day 42 all the way down to zero. Put it up so it covers the entire refrigerator in the kitchen. And have him every day at the end of the day rip off a page and says, this is how many more days until I don't have to do this anymore. Because I'm taking care of my wife. That she needs to be taken care of medically right now. And she's like, well, I don't know if I can do that. And I said, okay, this is just a suggestion. You don't have to. I said, but you, you and him definitely need to sit down and talk about there's this expectation from years of being married that now can't be done. Mm-hmm. And it's a temporary period of time. So I haven't heard the rest of the story yet. We'll see. And uh, so they were coming in and they said, like, Dad, can we go down to the timeshare and Orlando this July? I said, sure. No, it's, it's what it's there for. I, mean, I, I bought it when you were six, and we've had it ever since, and it's there for use in the summer. And uh, they used it last year. And uh, she's like, okay. Can we all go? Yeah. Oh, hey, <laughs> sleep safe, washer, dryer, full kitchen, non-tobacco. You know, it's great. Three TVs. We'll all go together. Uh, I'm, I'm sure we can get rollaways in. <laughs> we can have class. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to end with one little story about marriage that maybe nobody else has ever written in a marriage book that single people need to hear because it's the truth. It's reality. It's a look inside a marriage. And it's the guy that wrote this book, Peter Hubbard. He wrote, My wife and I learned early in our marriage what it felt like to feel trapped. We had saved ourselves for the other. We were virgins when we married. I imagine a flood of blessings would pour over our relationship, but within three years, we were drowning in curses, not blessings. My wife experienced intense, unrelenting panic attacks. She was hospitalized, medicated, and desperately needed me to slow down, listen to her, and love her. But I was too busy helping others as a pastor, a youth pastor. And when I did not stop long enough to listen, instead... I would foolishly speak. I would argue and try to fix her. Many times she exploded with the words, I hate you and I wish I'd never married you. I felt the same way, but I was too spiritual or mature to say it. We were stuck. We had no sexual relationship, didn't want to be married to each other, but knew that God's word was against divorce. I remember lying in bed many nights thinking, I have the worst of both worlds. If I were single, I would accept the fact that I must be celibate. But here I am, lying next to a stunningly beautiful woman, and if I touch her, she will kill me. (laughs) God was turning away from my rights to his calling for my life. He had called me to follow him, even in a troubled marriage, even in panic attacks, even in abstinence. To quote Hill and Rowland, quote, marriage is the operation by which a woman's vanity and a man's ego are extracted without any anesthetics. <laughs> I love you guys and thank you for coming to this and so good to have you come. And each week has been a joy for me. It's been